0: welcome to the Executive Real Estate Investing Show. This podcast is for you, the busy business owner or executive looking to create generational wealth. Here, we're going to show you how to do that through real estate investing from multifamily to industrial and everything in between. You will become a real estate investing expert. And now here's your host, Michael Holman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Executive Real Estate Investing Show. As always, I'm your host, Michael Holman. Excited to have you with me today because it is one of my favorite episodes. It is an executive questions episode. I love these. I love doing them. I love answering your questions, and we have a great list of questions for you today. Excited to go over those. But first, if you've been listening for a little while, you like the show, go ahead, go to go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, leave us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate that. We always love hearing from you. So go ahead, uh, give us a review, give us a rating. Also, if you haven't been on our website yet, executivereishow.com, go check it out. You can sign up for a newsletter. You can get all this great real estate investing advice, business advice right, right into your inbox. It's fantastic. You can also ask one of these executive questions that I have with me right now that we're gonna be going through. Uh, all sorts of stuff that you can do on the website. So definitely go check it out. Also, if you're listening to one of the web or one of the episodes and you're thinking, you know, hey, I'd love to go, you know, connect with that guest or or whatever the case may be, you can actually go into the show notes on that episode on the website and you can find how to connect with that person. So definitely check it out. ExecutivereiShow.com. And also, before we get into these executive questions, I'm going to give Executive tip: So today's executive tip is to start thinking bigger than you're currently thinking, right? I, I, I'm a big believer in reading a lot of books, and I've been reading a ton lately. And one of the things that I have noticed is a theme, right? I read a lot of self-help books, I read a lot of real estate investing books, I, I you know, I read a lot of those type of books. And one of the things that has stuck out to me as I've been reading all of these. There's one reoccurring theme through almost all of these books and all of these authors say the same thing. And that is whatever you're thinking right now, it's too small. You need to start thinking bigger, right? And then all the steps after that are, are, can, you know, vary a little bit, they're a little bit different, but they all start with the same thing. And that is start thinking bigger than you are currently thinking. So I want to take whatever your goals are, whatever your dreams are. And I want you to think about those for a second And I want you to determine, how can I make these bigger? Am I limiting myself by my goals? All right, so go ahead and take a moment to do that. I think you're going to be really happy with the results. Once you start thinking bigger, you're going to see that all these things start falling into place. And that old saying, where there's a will, there's a way, you'll find that that is very, very true. All right, without further ado, we're going to get right into these executive questions. Uh, First one is from Joseph H., Joseph asks, what is your opinion about investing slash owning small apartment buildings, specifically 100 units or less? Joseph, great question. And this is pretty common among, you know, kind of the middle class investor, right? A lot of people where it's like, hey, I've been doing single family homes. I've been doing some smaller, you know, duplexes or fourplexes or things like that. Um, I really want to retain control, you know, and I don't know if I'm ready to go into like a syndication where they're doing two or 300 units. But I could maybe purchase, you know, on my own or just with a few people, 40 units or 50 unit building or something like that. Um, I don't have any problem with it specifically. I will say that there are certain disadvantages to owning less units rather than more units. And I'll go over those um, as far as it being bad or, you know, you're not going to make any money. You know, I, I don't agree with that. I, you know, some of the people out there are like anything less than hundred units is just a terrible idea. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to do less than hundred units, but that's because of the way I structure my deals, right? Because I'm a syndicator, I'm a developer. I need the economies of scale that come from hundred plus units, right? My deals don't work as well in general, there's some that do, but in general, my deals don't work the way that I want them to. And the the way that my investors want them to when they're, you know, 40 units, not to say they can't. And some often, you know, we've had some, some of those deals that have worked quite well, but that's not the target because things over hundred, 200 units become easier because of the economies of scale for us. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. There's a few things that I would point out if I were to do it, right. If I, let's say, you know, Michael is going to go out and buy a 40 unit apartment complex. The thing that I would definitely do is make sure I have a great management company on board. Uh, the reason for that is when you're under hundred units, you don't have an onsite manager, uh, and so, you're not getting a full dedicated team to your site, right? So, most likely at 30, 40, 50 units, you know, most things under 100 units, maybe some right around the 100 mark, don't have an on site manager that's going to be managing your property full time, which means you're going to have somebody who's somewhere else that comes to your site on a regular basis, right? it's easier to go with a management company that's maybe a little less prestigious or not. It doesn't have quite as good of a reputation when they're there full-time. Because when you're there full-time, right? If people are showing up, you know, you can generally get units rented and and things like that. But it's because somebody's always there, right? If somebody's not there most of the time and you go with a management company that's not very good, I mean, that manager just might never show up to your property, right? I mean, they could spend, no, I mean, they might go weeks between even visiting your site. And so you really want in those, in that unit mix, right? Less than a hundred units. You really want a management company that you can trust. That's very high caliber because you need to know that they're going to go out and be checking on the site regularly. They're going to be, they're going to be able to lease up the property, even though somebody isn't there 100% of the time. So that is probably the biggest advice that I would have, and that's why it gets so tricky um, under 100 units. Right? That's that's like the big one of the big disadvantages with this economies of scale is because under 100 units, unit, units property management becomes a little more tricky. Right? Um, that's one of the benefits. I mean, if if you look at the opposite, right? Let's look at the benefits of going over 100 units. You're definitely going to have an onsite manager who's going to be there full time, right? Whether you self manage, right, I and mean, what I mean by that is you hire an onsite manager, or you have a property management company, or you hire a third party. Uh, you're going to have an onsite manager, or you're going to want to have one if you don't. So you're going to have an onsite manager. There's a huge advantage. Um, another one of the big advantages of having a hundred plus units, and one of the reasons we do it. We like building nice facilities. I mean, a lot of our, all of our new builds are class A. Um, and one of the things we like putting in fantastic amenity packages, right? I mean, one of the, one of the apartments we did in Southern Utah, right? It's got three pickleball courts. It's got a swimming pool, a splash pad, hot tub, barbecue, right? This is the kind of thing that we like to do in our projects. And those things don't make sense if you have 30, 40 units, right? it's hard to justify putting in a $300,000 swimming pool when you only have 20, 30, 40 units, right? And so because we like to provide a certain lifestyle and a certain amenity package with all of our apartments specifically, um, under 100 units is hard for us, right? I mean, we just we don't get the kind of community that my, our company Overland is generally known for uh, and what we pride ourselves in. So you're just not getting those economies of scale, right? The other thing is your returns, you know, your returns can be similar. <clears throat> You'll hear people say all the time, oh yeah, you got to go over a hundred units. You know, do I think it's, do I think um, it's usually easier to get a higher return with a higher unit count? Yes, I do. But I've, I mean, we've had to pass on 500. If that were the only philosophy you would think, okay, well, 500 units is better than 300 units. All right, we've had to pass on 500 unit developments that didn't make sense, right? So it's not like the bigger, you know, as you get bigger, just it always makes sense, right? It's like, well, in that scenario, then 1,000 units is better than 500. You know, that's not always the case, right? So we've had to pass on 500 units because it didn't make sense. Um, but in general, you think about it. If each unit is profitable, which you would assume, right? Let's say each unit is bringing you more cash flow into into your pocket than out of your pocket. Then, in theory, the more units you have, the more cash flow coming in, right? And that's just generally how you would think about that. Um, so, uh, you know, under 100 units, that's that's kind of my feelings on it. If if it's what's important to you, right? If you have, if control is important to you and you have the ability to do it on your own, there's a lot of people that that's the number one thing, right? That's not the number one thing for me, right? I, I'm more interested in the deal and the project, everything surrounding that. I'm okay giving up control for a 300 unit deal in a fantastic location and one that I wouldn't normally be able to get. I'm okay doing that rather than maintaining control of 20 units, but. If you want control and and you're trying to maintain control, uh, less units could be good, right? But like I said, the biggest thing that the biggest reason I see small uh, apartment projects fail is usually because the property manager, right? I mean, you just have to have an amazing on top of a property manager. So if you're going to do that, you're looking for you're looking for top of the line, not necessarily. I'm not saying the most expensive, but who is it that you can 100 absolutely put your trust in that they're going to do a great job because uh, that's going to go a lot further than if you just, you know, go find someone off the street, right. Or somebody who only manages large projects. A lot of times those guys don't know how to possibly like go from, okay, we got a team of three, you know, staff on every single property to all of a sudden we have no staff on this property and we have to send people there. It doesn't make sense. So, uh, Joseph, great question. Those are my thoughts, right? I don't think they're bad. I prefer over 100 units. I generally will always do over 100 units. But if you find a right deal, you know, if you find a good deal and you find the right opportunity, under 100 units can work just as well as over 100 units. But it's all all about finding those opportunities. Perfect. Next question. Next question comes from Frederick M. How has COVID-19 affected the rate of return in the commercial or multifamily projects you've done? Interesting question. I mean, this is one that we were getting a lot, right? Back in mid-20s, mid-2020, even through 2021, we got this question a whole lot. We don't get this question as much anymore. Um, Most of the projects that we've seen have have fared very well through COVID. Um, Obviously, nothing's immune. I mean, we have retail properties where we had to deal with some some issues. I mean, there was some concessions that we had to, to make with some of our retail users. Um, Cause we have a lot of small um, triple net lease properties kind of throughout the Midwest. Uh, you know, we had to deal with some of that overall. I think most people across the board would agree that COVID has redefined some of the landscapes, but it hasn't knocked anyone out. Right. I mean, you look at it, even one of the things that we're into, we're into hospitality, right? We do hotels. Um, one of the things that, that we've noticed is a pretty quick and rapid rebound on hotels, right? I mean, I got, I got multiple hotel developments coming up very soon and uh, we've gotten feasibility studies from some of the, you know, best, I mean, we spend 10, $15,000 on these feasibility studies and these market studies that come from the top market research companies in the world. Right. And, Everybody is assuming a pretty quick recovery in a lot of markets on hospitality. Well, a year ago, everybody thought hospitality was dead. Right. I mean, but it's kind of funny. It's like, everybody's talking about how hospitality is recovering and nobody really wants to lend on it. But, oh, I mean, have you been to a hotel a, any kind of destination spot over the last year and a half? I mean, even a year ago, I went down to Southern Utah to check on one of the projects. I, I got the very last, I booked it like three weeks ahead. I got the very last room that was available in that hotel. I mean, completely packed, um, right? We, we don't have a lot in the way of um, professional office right now. Uh, that's not something that I can speak as much to, right? I mean, we do do medical office. Medical offices is, is been great, right? We like medical office a lot. We do do some, we, I mean, we're getting a little bit of professional office um, That's that I think is where the biggest change is coming. Right, is because you have this professional office and the work from home thing, and you, everybody's dealing with that. And what's that effect? I mean, I still come in the office every single day, but I know a lot of people who don't. Right, and so that's the landscape that I see changing the most from COVID. Um, even retail, retail. I don't think retail. Retail's not going away. Right. At the end of the day, people still need somewhere to go. Right. Even if it's to eat. Right. You. Can't, I mean. Yes, you have things like Uber Eats and whatnot, but you still need a restaurant to cook your food, right? So retail isn't going away. It might adjust and have to adapt, right? There might be less shopping and more restaurants or different things like that. There might be an adjustment, but it's not like flat out, all right, it's going to die, right? Uh, multifamily, been great. Storage, been great. Um, every, you know, all of those asset classes have done really, really well through COVID um, and have actually stood up uh, very nicely through the pandemic. So uh, that's really all I'm going to say on COVID. I mean, I, I, we've been through this topic like a hundred times. Everyone's eyes have probably glazed over as soon as the word COVID came up. Uh, so we're not going to beat that one with the dead horse anymore. Uh, but let's move on. Curtis R., when you were first starting, How can you get deals to compete for? How do you get brokers to take you seriously and send you listings and really advocate for you? Uh, Curtis, this is a question that a lot of people beginning in in real estate investing struggle with, right? I mean, especially I see a lot of people in like the the multifamily syndication space, right? to, To just narrow in on it. You get more new people in multifamily syndication than just about any other space. And it's all because a lot of those people own single family homes, right? Rentals, houses, apartments. Those are things that all of the new, all of the beginners really understand. They get it. It makes sense to them, right? I own something. They live in it. They pay me. I pay my expenses and I get money, right? So it's really, really common, Um, And in that multifamily syndication space, there's a lot of competition. And so the question really that that I would turn on to you, Curtis, right? how, How do you think you can get broker's attention? Understanding that these agents and these brokers are dealing with 10, 20, 30, 40 other people just like you plus probably some institutions plus some people who are a lot more qualified and capable than you now i'm not saying you can't get it don't get me wrong i'm not saying that at all but start thinking you know cuz each broker is different but you that when you turn it the question like that it starts giving you an idea of the amount of effort time that you have to put into this in order to get a broker's attention, right? I mean, if you want want to be um, on a broker's list, you have to have that broker's attention. And there's a lot of people more capable with more money likely than you trying to get those same listings because everybody wants those best deals. So you're going to have to do something that sets you apart from all those other people. Right. I mean, if you come in trying to say if you have one hundred thousand dollars to put down towards a towards an apartment complex uh, and you're trying to go in for 200 unit apartment complex and you don't have anything set up, you just you a one hundred thousand dollars and you're trying to get a deal, you know, trying to go into that broker and saying I'm trying to compete on, you know, I'm I'm more qualified than Mr. Institution who has. You know, a hundred million dollars and dry powder ready to go. It's never going to work. Right. So you have to compete on what your strengths are. And here's the honest truth with other things, right? Here's the other side of this. People do, I mean, you can, for better or for worse, people do business with people they like and know and trust. Right. You want brokers to send you stuff. You better be, you better be top of mind with that broker because that is the only, chance you have to get their attention. I mean, just straight up, right? So you have to, you have to differentiate yourself from the competition somehow, some way and play your strengths. And you got to be able to get their attention, right? You got to be able to get to know them. And like I said, you got to understand that the people you're dealing with probably have more money, more experience, more capability than you. So you're going to have to put in a superhuman amount of effort, right? To get those first deals. Now it's a snowball effect, right? Because once you get one deal, usually the next deal becomes easier and the next deal becomes easier, right? Uh this happened to us when we were getting started in Arizona, right? It was like a snowball effect, right? You close on like a you know, four and a half million dollar property and a two million dollar property and a nine million dollar property, and all of a sudden everybody perks up and starts going, Hey, who are these guys? You know, I need to. You know, and all of a sudden you start finding that people are coming to you. Now that can happen to you, but the hardest one, by far, is that first one, right? So you have got to go buck wild, right? You have to be top of mind all the time with that person, uh, and that is the best advice I can give, right? Because as much as it's not emotional. You need to be there competing. And guess what? You're gonna have to compete probably for 20, 30, 40, 50, hundred deals before you're gonna get that first one. But guess what? It's gonna get less the next time and it's gonna get less the next time. And also and you can start building a track record to show these people, hey, I am possible. Because the worst thing that a that an agent or a broker could do is waste their time, right? Especially in today's market, it is so hot, right? They would they would rather sell the property, you know. I mean, and they're not the owner, so I can't speak for them, but but uh in general, a broker wants to know that somebody can close because if you can't close, there's 10 other people right behind you who absolutely can. And they're not interested in you dragging them out for two, three, four months, and then not being able to close. Right. So those are all the things you got to think you got to go put yourself in the shoe. You got to understand brokers enough to go put uh, yourself in their shoes and try and figure out, okay, if I was the broker and you know, someone like me came to me, what would it take for me to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to send this guy some stuff. That's what you got to do. Uh, next question comes from Paul R. Paul asks, what is the best way to obtain leverage? Paul, there's a million ways to obtain leverage and it varies uh, very much depending on the asset class and, uh, you know, who the sponsors are, things like that, right? Right. Strong sponsor, preferred asset class. You know, you just go down to your bank, right? I mean, if 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 you uh, if you're a really strong borrower and you got five million dollars, ten million dollars sitting in the bank account, and you're trying to get a loan on a hundred and fifty unit multifamily project in a in the back of a, I mean, you could go to you go to just about any lender, and they are going to lend you money on that project. Not all lenders are created equal, but there's a million different lenders out there, right? There's, there's everything from, you know, community banks to national banks. You have private lenders, there's seller financing, you have debt funds. I mean, you have an infinite number of lenders, right? The things, there's certain things that each lender is going to make sure you, they, they have, they're going to check your project. They want to know you have a good project and they want to make sure that they're not going to get burned. I mean, the biggest thing for a bank, they want to lend money, right? Lenders make money by lending money, right? So they want their money out there. The only thing they hate more than not having money lent out is not getting their money back, right? So all the things that they're going to focus on when you're going to get your loan is they want to be assured they're going to get their money back. And the less assurance they have, the more they're going to charge you the more assurance they have, the less they're going to charge you, right? And and it's not like there's one lender that moves up and down the scale, right? I mean, oftentimes those are different lenders in different buckets, right? But they just they want the assurance that they're going to get paid back. But the best way, I mean, if you're looking and you're just getting started, two ways to really start understanding how to go get a loan, how to obtain leverage, that is go talk to a mortgage broker right? Go find someone who's helping people finance deals that you're doing and that is on your team. Go find them and talk with them. You can ask them all the questions, you know, any of the questions that you'd be scared to ask a lender, you can ask them. The other way is if you're, you know, say you're going to skip the mortgage broker for whatever reason, uh, it's just start talking to lenders, right? I mean, the only way you're going to understand how to get the loan that you're looking for is by talking to them. And it might be 5, 10, 15 conversations and you might fall flat on your face 10 times out of 10, but guess what, you're going to know a lot better after you get chastised multiple times from lenders about not knowing what you're doing. You better believe that number 11, you're going to know a lot better about what you're doing than you did on 1 through 10. right? So those are the two ways that I would look at to just start just start getting an idea, right? The idea is either go to the source and figure out what they want or you have to find somebody who, who's constantly working with that source of leverage and working through them to get what you need. So uh, those are the best ways that I would say. All right, last question comes from Henry Y. Henry asks, what are you seeing in cap rate changes across asset types that you own? Uh, this is a, you know, this is a great question. In general and in the past, we've been seeing them just going down, right? I mean, for the last few years, they've been going down and down and down. Uh, there's a big question mark happening right now with some of the interest rates and things like that. What are they going to do? Are they going to stall out? Are they going to soften? Are they going to go up? Uh, the answer is I don't really have a crystal ball for the future, right? In general, I will say for the last few years, they have been getting more and more compressed, right? Now... Um, People can call that different things. Call people. Some people will say, hey, we're in a bubble. You know, they're compressed. It's going to pop. Some people are saying, nope, we're making market adjustments that have needed to be made. They've been building for the last 10 years. Um, you know, we were undersupplied for, you know, for the last 10 years. And this is just the result of um, all of that, you know, reaching its crux uh, or reaching the breaking point. I mean, call it whatever you want. Cap rates have been decreasing pretty consistently um, across the board. There's only a few asset classes where cap rates have stayed fairly similar. Um, uh, And, you know, those are the asset classes that you would generally think of, right? I mean, uh, we've seen office, some hospitality, you know, stay similar. Um, But even in some of those areas, they're starting to compress as well. So we're not really seeing things go up right now. Most of the time we're seeing things go down now. Well, like I said, we're right on the cusp of a potential change. We've got interest rates, um, talking about pricing and housing markets and all sorts of stuff that's happening right now as I'm recording this. Um, and I wish I had more uh, foresight or information to be able to give you a definitive answer. But right now, I'll tell you right now, I don't know. This is a question that I want you to ask me again. In you know, ask it again to me in one month. And I think I'll have a lot better idea uh, and handle on where we're at and where we're going. Uh, right now, there's just a lot of things kind of in flux, and you got rising interest rates. Like I said, that's the big—that's the biggest thing that has a question mark on things. How is that going to affect things? Um, and that's what we're all kind of looking to try and figure out and understand and see. You know, in in general, in a vacuum, you would assume interest rates go up, prices go down, which means cap rates go up. Uh, that's generally what you see in a vacuum, right? There's other factors that potentially go into that um, that we're dealing with, right? And the, what I mentioned, right? This undersupply, right? I mean, let's take apartments, for example. Um, we'll take my home state of Utah. You know, Utah has is undersupplied by about 45,000 units. You know, they need 45,000 uh, units of housing and over the next little while. And they're just super undersupplied. Uh, you look at that and you wonder, okay, if interest rates go up, cap rates might not change because there's so much demand out there and, and such little supply, they could remain the same. Right? If, if you had a perfect balance in supply demand and interest rates went up, you would then start assuming the cap rates are going to go up as well because prices are going to go down. Um, but there's some interesting things at play here. I'm really excited to see how this plays out over the next couple of months. Um, and like I said, I hope yeah, Henry get back on. Ask me that question again in a month or two, and I, I hope to have a really good answer for you then too. Uh, but it's it's going to be an exciting time and interesting to see you know where the market goes and how the market reacts to some of these changes. All right, that is it, everyone. That is our executive questions episode. So glad you could join us. So glad. You could ask these questions and I can help answer them. If you have a question that you want to ask, go to executivereishow.com. Click on the executive questions button, type in your question, and I will read it and answer it for you right on this show. And you're going to get your questions answered. Thank you so much. Once again, if you're listening, if you're listening on Apple podcast right now or Spotify or wherever you're listening, What I want you to do is as soon as you get done with this episode, go ahead, leave us a rating and review. It'd be greatly appreciated. And we appreciate your time. We'll see you next time, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Executive Real Estate Investing Show. Ready to learn more? Go to executivereishow.com for more episodes and resources to help you create generational wealth through real estate investing. That's executivereishow.com.